Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 26th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. For regular viewers and listeners, you know that one of the persistent, unfortunately persistent themes in our book, as well as in the world itself, is financial injustice, financial inequality, and above all else, financial corruption. Um, last week, we had the New York Times journalist Peter Goodman on the show, talking about what he calls in his new book, Davos Man. Davos Man isn't necessarily corrupt, but... Davos Mann, at least according to Goodman, has shaped a profoundly unjust and rotten world economic system, particularly in the United States. Uh, when it comes to financial corruption, we've had a number of shows. We had most recently uh, Frank Vogel on the show talking about his new book on the global fight against corruption. We had the very brilliant uh, young Financial Times journalist Tom Burgess on, who has a new book out, or it's not so new anymore, a book on dirty money. And one of the bravest um, reporters on, uh, on financial corruption, particularly in Russia, is another British-based journalist, Catherine Belton, who is being sued by Vladimir Putin and his henchmen in London courts. Um, she has a book about how KGB capitalism has not only taken over Russia, uh, but the world itself. Uh, meanwhile, Fiona Hill, who is very well known as one of the outspoken critics of Donald Trump, she did work for him in his, um, as his Russian analyst, was on the show late last year talking about the increasingly Russian way of life in America. But perhaps we might reverse that. Perhaps it's America that's creating the Russian way of life. Because when it comes to kleptocracy by the numbers, my guest today has some very, very troubling numbers. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to quote two or three of them, which he leads in his book. Um, uh, the percentage of, U uh, percentage of U.S. companies in which anonymous real estate purchases are still legal, 98%. Total amount Donald Trump properties made from clients matching money laundering profiles before 2016, 1.5 billion. Uh, and most troublingly, the country most complicit in helping individuals hide their finances, according to the Tax Justice Network, the United States of America. So maybe America itself is the kleptocracy, the kleptocracy capital of the world. Uh, that's what my guest today on the show seems to be suggesting. His name is Casey uh, Michel, and he's the author of a book that just came out uh, late last year, American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And he's joining me from uh, Louisiana. Uh, Casey, was my introduction a little overblown or dramatic, or is indeed America really when it comes down to it by the numbers the capital of the world's kleptocracy 
Yeah, unfortunately, Andrew, um, I don't think that uh, you've overblown it one bit. Given the magnitude, the scope, and the scale of the issue at hand, I don't think it's possible to overstate just how serious or just how uh, 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 substantial this issue truly is. I know that you just ran through some of the numbers at the outset uh, in, in, in this generous introduction right there. And again, you know, the book itself does have a whole range of facts and figures to start off uh, the book itself, I get the book details how the United States of America has transformed into what I describe, what I argue, is now the world's largest offshore financial secrecy haven. Uh, as you'll see, my lovely uh, wife uh, right behind me, Delicious down here in Alexandria, power, Louisiana, right? uh, getting her phone out of uh, out of her old bedroom. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, the United States of America is now, as I argue, the world's greatest offshore financial secrecy haven. You know, when we think of offshoring, I think a lot of folks still have in mind. The traditional offshore havens of yore, right? The Panamas, the Bermudas, the the uh, British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, those traditional offshore havens that sucked out so much money from the developed world. But what we have completely missed and what this book is attempting to rectify is that it's the United States of America that's brought so many of those offshoring and pro-kleptocracy services back, as we say, onshore. We have this kind of outdated terminology that we use to describe the broader offshoring world. When we have right here in the United States of America, all of the offshoring financial secrecy needs, all these pro-kleptocracy services that the oligarchs, the regimes, the kleptocrats around the world are looking for. Uh, just to pull on one stat, the best estimates now see the offshoring world at about 10% of global GDP, somewhere at about 15 or $20 trillion dollars Total. This is the total amount of money Define, that has been uh, effectively disappeared, which is about the size of the Chinese GDP, right? This offshoring superpower with the United States of America right at the center of so much of it. Okay, so you use this term offshoring, which comes up quite liberally in your book. What, what does it mean? It literally means, if we look at the actual origin of the term, it literally means that these were jurisdictions that existed off shores off of the European continent, off of the continent of North America, which is why the original offshore jurisdictions were uh, smaller islands, uh, British overseas territories, British crown dependencies, places again like the Cayman Islands, places like the British Virgin Islands, uh, nation states themselves, places like Malta, places like Cyprus, Belize, South Pacific. Guess, well, is it Belize? Belize is absolutely on there. Panama is absolutely on there. Yeah, the Cook Jonathan Islands Perry in the South Pacific. Yeah. Wonderful novels about this offshore world. No, and this is a world that has existed for at least a half century. When I'm talking about kleptocracy, I'm talking about this transnational phenomenon of international financial flows that are unchecked, unregulated, and often anonymized. And all of the kleptocratic figures that are taking advantage of them. But I do want to couch that by saying this is not a system that the kleptocrats themselves developed. This is a system that built upon previous offshoring networks, previous offshoring services uh, and industries that Western officials, Western businessmen, Western policy makers themselves saw fit to create, to expand, to and to entrench for their own benefit that the kleptocratic figures only in the past few decades themselves began building upon themselves, began using for their own benefit to the detriment of the rest of us and also within that dynamic, the United States of America bringing so many of those services back onshore. So again, answer to the point I was making earlier, 
we still use the term offshore, but in many ways, it's still outdated because what are we talking about if the offshore systems exist actually onshore in American states like Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming, South Dakota, having transformed the United States, the greatest onshore financial jurisdiction uh, in the world into also simultaneously with so few of us paying any attention, the greatest offshore jurisdiction as well. This is almost as if uh, had Kafka been writing about global finance or if we brought him back to life, he would imagine America as this onshore, offshore place. Yeah. You mentioned the history. You said that this has been in the works for a while. You begin the book with a, a very troubling uh, quote from Paul Massaro. Uh, Massaro wrote, the Cold War is over. The gangsters won. Um, in a month or two, I've got Francis Fukuyama on the show, The End of History Man. He has a new book out. He didn't really talk about the end of history, but he's forever associated with that term. The Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall was supposed to represent um, the end of history, the beginning of a universal liberalism. But with the end of the Cold War, at least according to Massaro, and I think you, the gangsters won, is much of what you're describing, this offshoring of the world economy, is this a post-1989 phenomenon? Is it the, does it go hand in hand with the end of the Cold War? Uh, it absolutely does. You know, the short answer is that so much of this in researching this book and investigating these dynamics and in following these kind of policy developments that we saw take place and create the kind of architecture required for this explosion of modern kleptocracy. It's very clear to me, and I try to make this clear in the book, that so much of this dates back to exactly that period, the late 1980s, the early 1990s, when you had this explosion of these geysers of new uh, and in many ways unchecked and anonymized wealth tied to suspect or suspicious sources emerging from not just the post-Soviet region and not just the broader post-communist space, but also the broader post-colonial space as technology allowed for the ease of access to financial flows, as you had new regimes, new forces, new dynamics, new oligarchic classes emerging in the post-Soviet space, in the post-communist space, in the post-colonialist space. Remember, the, the, the language of the time is that these were regimes and figures looking to democratize, looking to bring free market economies, and looking to spread freedom domestically. And it would be in our best interest to make sure they have the ease of access to financial flows, to make sure that they can actually implement uh, all of the policies we would like to see out of Washington, out of London, out of Brussels, make sure that all that financing is available and accessible to them and bring them into the global economy. And you can see why that rhetoric would be appealing. I mean, it certainly is. But what we know 30 years later, after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the end of the Cold War, is exactly what Paul Massaro describes in that one quote, that one single opening sentence right there at the book right there. And I, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with Paul and he and I have discussed this many a time, but he is precisely correct. Paul on the show. Uh, oh, yes. When it comes to gangsters, one person who comes to mind, he only gets a short mention, a footnote in your book, is the American financier Jeffrey Epstein, who committed suicide and seems to be involved in a, in a terrible web of corruption, of child sexual abuse, and many other questions which no one seems to be able to answer. Is Epstein, I use this term carefully, is he a pinup for this new system? Uh, that's a great question. I would describe Epstein as someone who exists, as I would describe in the book, in this kind of enabling space, in this enabling landscape 
When I and others use the term of enablers, we're talking about specific American nationals, in this case, the United States of America, although enablers do exist in Canadian or Australian or British uh, dynamics and polities as well. These are the class and cast of American professionals, the lawyers, the accountants, the fixers, the real estate agents, the luxury goods providers, the broader services industry that Epstein certainly was a part of insofar as he was the one making connections. He was also the one providing services. Obviously, he ended up being caught in a web of horrific crime that so many of the other enablers and those in the enabling class never end up doing. Um, that we see would not allow kleptocracy to exist without these American enablers. There is no American transformation. There is no growth of explosion of the United States of America into the world's leading offshore economy without this class of American professionals, without this class of American enablers. And then beyond that, the kinds of policies that allow these industries and these American nationals to flourish and profit uh, along the way. And I mean, you're, you're exactly right, Andrew. You know, Epstein is not a key figure in my book, but I do think there are elements of his work, his connections, this kind of transnational relationship building and financial empire building uh, that he was involved in that I think do point to or gesture at the broader phenomenon of modern kleptocracy. Absolutely. Was all this brought, again, I use this word carefully, to a climax in the Trump regime? We Here we have four, I think, of the worst enablers of the, the corrupt American system that you describe in your book, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Rick Gates, and Michael Flynn. Um, is Trump a, a product of this or a cause of this or both? Or is it hard to to disentangle cause and effect in the American kleptocracy when it comes to Donald Trump. Well, that's that's I would I, I suppose I would tend toward the latter there, Andrew. It's difficult to disentangle where cause and an effect begins, or where symptom ends and disease begins, or what have you. What we know about Donald Trump is, as I argue in the book, he is one of, if not the figures, who has profited. And I mean that in a literal term, profit in terms of financial benefit, and obviously, as we know, from political power and access to political power, more than any other figure, at least in the United States of America, from this broader American transformation. He was not the figure that created the kinds of policies that allowed for the inflow of billions and billions of dollars anonymously and unchecked into the American real estate sector, especially the luxury real estate sector. He was not the first American real estate developer to realize there were all of these new forces, new regimes, new dictatorships emerging elsewhere, looking to hide and launder their money while keeping their assets safe. In many ways, I'm not surprised by his behavior whatsoever. There's every logical he's reason. Really working this, I mean, what he's been very good historically at doing is working the system. He's not absolutely any laws, or at least he's skirting the laws. Who knows whether he really broke the laws, but. Uh, he's just working the system as uh, an amoral businessman. Yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think that's a wonderful way to phrase how he profited from the system as it existed. Now, we know, again, in his presidency, he also pursued policies to help entrench some of those systems. He targeted, for instance, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is one of the core elements of America's anti-corruption policy. He slowed down prosecutions of other white-collar criminals partaking in this kind of kleptocratic actions. He took a number of steps that helped expand American kleptocracy as it is. But, you know, I, I will say, Andrew, I was speaking with some British colleagues just the other day. Because one of the things, and maybe we'll have time to talk about this more uh, later in our conversation, is over the past year under the Biden administration, 
we have seen unprecedented momentum in beginning to tackle some of these policies, target some of these policies, and clean up some of this yeah, broader I definitely American- want to get in the second half of the show. I do want to get into okay. the fixes because, uh, as you're suggesting, and as people like Burgess and Belton, I'm guessing that some of your British colleagues suggest, and Fiona Hill, in fact, there are ways to fix this. I was struck in your book by, you know, we can all pick on uh, Epstein. He's obviously um, a satanic figure. Another character who comes up in your book, a number of Russian or Russian, European, Russian, American oligarchs. Another man who comes up in your book is Len Blavatnik. I've always thought, I mean, he's always got a very good press and and you suggest that he's one of the enablers, the greasers of this system. Um, These people you are suggesting are launderers of reputation. They do a very good job appearing much more moral, much more credible than they are. They they may have all walked out of a, a 19th century Balzac novel. <laughs> I suppose that's absolutely true. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if I, next time I picked up some, some Balzac, I, I see far more familiarity reading through Balzac this time than I did earlier. I will say to uh, the case study of Mr. Blavatnik, what, what makes him a, a fascinating typology of this broader phenomenon of, again, transnational financial flows, transnational figures themselves, is that Blavatnik, unlike the other Russian or post-Soviet oligarchs I write about in the book, he is an American citizen. In many ways, he is the greatest success story. Yeah, I mean, he's invested in uh, the basketball teams. He's actually invested in one of my friend's businesses. I'm not sure if my friend is even aware of his shady uh, financial characteristics. Sure, sure. Uh, Again, there are all number of questions about the initial provenance of uh, Mr. Blavatnik's wealth, born and raised in the uh, the Soviet Union. It has now become, um, at last check, not only one of the wealthiest Americans, but also, uh, according to Forbes, the wealthiest single British national as well. He's done quite well for himself. He was wrapped up in the broader 2016 interference investigations uh, into uh, uh, Russian interference efforts in the United States. He still maintains clear links uh, and close links with a number of sanctioned Russian oligarchs, many of whom he worked closely with in the early 2010s. Well, the, 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 the wonderful thing about Mr. Blavatnik that I get on in the book that I discuss in the book is that he allows us to examine what you just mentioned a moment ago, Andrew, which is the phenomenon not of money laundering in and of itself, but the logical next step that we have seen play out time and again with these kleptocratic figures, that of, as we say uh, uh, on the uh, political science term, is uh, uh, reputation laundering. That is to say the transformation of these figures from oligarchic backgrounds, from questionable or suspect sources of wealth into moguls, into philanthropists. Into and that's why we need, um, that's why uh, we need uh, books like yours, uh, American Kleptocracy, to reveal what's really happening. Uh, as I said at the beginning, we talked about Davos Man, its impact on America. There is a a, a heartbreaking quality to this. Uh, you quote the uh, uh, UC Berkeley economist, Gabriel Zuckman, one of the authorities on economic inequality. He was on the show recently. Um, and yesterday I had a, a lawyer, David Rudolph, on the show talking about the, the dark side of America's criminal justice system, about men who were often uh, put away for many years, sometimes even executed for small crimes they didn't commit. That's the heartbreak of this, isn't it? Ultimately, um, ultimately, Casey, that not only are these enablers making tens, hundreds, billions of dollars, but they're not even going to jail. And on the other side, we have in America a criminal justice system where people go to jail for 20, 30 years, 
often for crimes they haven't committed or even if they did commit these crimes for minimal amounts. Yes. No, I mean, Andrew, I, I'm hardly the first to harp on the uh, injustice of the American judicial system and the imbalance uh, between resources dedicated to small level petty crime or drug usage uh, related crimes versus those white collar criminals uh, that have been uh, you know, feasting at the trough of all of the forms of transnational illicit wealth that have been flowing into the country. But you know, I do want to stop for a moment and, and I suppose remind viewers, remind listeners that what I write about in the book, some of these policies, some of these developments, some of these broader networks, the formation of shell companies, the transformation of the broader American trust industry into an offshoring industry unto itself. And again, beyond that, the transformation of things like private equity, hedge funds, real estate, the art market, auction houses, et cetera, into uh, destination areas for all this illicit wealth. So much of this has been perfectly legal. There are no regulations. There are no broader uh, uh, criminal uh, elements involved in the creation of these systems. I don't know who coined the phrase first, but the scandal isn't necessarily what's illegal. It's what America itself has permitted for, at this point, decades to take place, all for the benefit, again, of these specific oligarchic, kleptocratic, dictatorial figures, regimes elsewhere that are pillaging local populations that are looting from why, uh, state Len budgets. Len Blavatnik uh, is now known as Sir Leonard Blavatnik. He, he got a knighthood in the UK and he's, uh, he's celebrated in the US. So as you say, this is legal. This is the most chilling thing of all. We're going to take a break, um, Casey, and then I want to come back to a couple of case studies that you begin your book with, just to talk about some specific stories of, of how this thing works. Um, I want to talk about fixes, and I also want to talk about how this is playing out on the world stage in January 2022. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with more of um, Casey uh, Michel, the author of uh, a very important new book, American Kleptocracy. Hold tight, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. Welcome back. We are talking with Casey Michelle, the author of American Kleptocracy, a really troubling new book about how the US created the world's greatest money laundering scheme in history. Um, Casey, you begin the book um, with the story of a man called Teodoro Nguema Obiang Mang, otherwise known as Teodorin. He is the, at least according to Wikipedia today, the vice president of Equatorial Guinea, according to uh, the BBC, a recent uh, 2018 report, uh, $16 million was seized from him um, back then. You have a, an important piece in Rolling Stone uh, talking about how he used what the Rolling Stone called dirty money to buy Michael Jackson memorabilia. What is it about Theodorin that makes him, again, the, the epitome of this rotten system? Yeah, Theodorin was, uh, in many ways, kind of an easy case study to select. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that there were all number of oligarchic or dictatorial or family-related uh, uh, figures you could have selected. But but time and again, I kept coming back to Theodorin's story for, for a few reasons. One, his father is the longest-standing dictator in the world and has been tied to any number of broader financial scandals in and of itself. You know, listeners and viewers may remember about 20, 25 years ago in Washington, D.C., one of the country's oldest and most prestigious banks, Riggs Bank, which had been serving presidents since the 1850s, ended up collapsing because it had become effectively the piggy bank for the regime in the country of Equatorial Guinea that Theodorin himself was involved in. But after that happened, what we saw is that Theodorin used and abused each and every one of the systems that I write about in this book, American Kleptocracy itself. He uses American shell companies. He uses American real estate. He uses American art and auction houses to, as we write about in that Rolling Stone article, become the world's biggest collector of Michael Jackson memorabilia. And he uses the American enablers over and over and over again. He uses the real estate agents. He uses the auction house managers. He uses the luxury goods sellers. And he especially uses the American lawyers that are helping set up these networks, set up these meetings, and set up these purchases and again, do so perfectly legally and perfectly freely. In many ways, he is, as one federal investigator describes me, the kind of perfect poster child of modern kleptocracy. And in many ways, he's almost a caricature as well. You know, he wants nothing more than to be this global celebrity himself. And I, I don't think it's any surprise that, uh, as I and others have found, audiences always love hearing about these larger-than-life figures, no matter how depressing those stories are may be. He is hanging out with the celebrities. He is flying on the private jets. He is building the 200-foot private yachts. He's checking all of those boxes of modern conspicuous consumption. And he's doing like, it legally. I mean, what and he's, he's doing, doing I mean, it legally. Part yes. of this BBC headline about the 16 million C's from him. Everything he's doing in America is legal in terms of buying uh, because they're, they're basically stealing the wealth of... Um, uh, what, uh, which is uh, which? Uh, his um, he is the vice president of Equatorial Guinea, which you suggest has the largest GDP in Africa because of its natural resources. They're essentially stealing the wealth of the people yeah. and investing it in um, Michael Jackson memorabilia yeah. 
And it's legal because of the rottenness of the American system. The other character you begin the book with is a, a man called uh, Chaim Shoshet. Um, here we have a picture of him for people watching from the Cleveland Jewish News at a celebrity function. Um, and uh, you argue in the book that he is associated with um, uh, a, a Ukrainian financier called Igor Kolomoisky. What's so interesting about um, about Shoshet? Why did you lead with him as well? Yeah, the reason that I led with him was because he was a key figure in the broader network connected to Mr. Kolomoisky. I know I was talking just a moment ago about this figure from Equatorial Guinea who's buying the yachts, he's buying the cars, he's uh, living this incredibly swanky, uh, uh, in many ways, sleazy lifestyle that I think many folks will associate with modern uh, conspicuous consumption and modern kleptocracy. What's fascinating about the Kolomoisky network, though, is that even though it's following the same systems, even though he is working with Americans like Mr. Shockett, as well as a number of others who have been uh, specifically detailed in filings from the Department of Justice, Kolomoisky's money, and again, he is allegedly overseeing the biggest Ponzi scheme in Ukrainian history, and then getting all of that money out of Ukraine itself, much of it coming to the United States. He's not going to places like Malibu. He's not going to places like Manhattan. He's not going to places like Miami. He's not going to these kind of places we associate with the general 1% upper crust, ultra high net worth individuals. Instead, thanks to the help of Mr. Shockett and a number of other Americans, so much of Kolomoisky's money comes into, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio. Kolomoisky, according to American and Ukrainian investigators, used all of this dirty money to become the biggest landlord in Cleveland, Ohio. And he's not just stopping in Cleveland. He's going to small town after small town after small town across the American Midwest, across the Rust Belt, across the broader American heartland in West Virginia, in Kentucky, in Texas, and Illinois, and picking up all of these steel mills and factory plants and manufacturing plants and using those assets as part of a far broader money laundering carousel. And it's not just that the money laundering carousel continues for years and years to the detriment of Ukrainians back in Ukraine itself. But as we now know, those pledged investments that were supposed to be coming into these small towns, steel towns, factory towns across the American Midwest, those investments never went anywhere. They existed only on paper. And what ended up happening is that these steel mills, these factory mills that were purchased and connected to Mr. Kolomoisky's network, again, through the help of these Americans like Mr. Shockett, those assets began falling apart. Those jobs that were pledged to return never came back. That economic revitalization never went anywhere. And those factories have now begun imploding. Any remaining jobs have disappeared. Uh, former steel workers, former factory plant workers have been decimated physically, broken bones, scalded skin because of the lack of basic upkeep. And those economic crown jewels, again, of middle America, Rust Belt America, blue collar America that we would never associate with these transnational kleptocratic networks have been caught in the crosshairs. So no longer is it just those in Ukraine or in Equatorial Guinea or in Venezuela or in Russia or in China that are suffering. Now it's the Americans on the ground, these Main Street Americans that would never associate, never think they're part of some big international money laundering network that are the ones that are losing jobs and in some cases losing their lives as well. Ukraine is, of course, very much in the news this morning. The Wall Street Journal asked, what does Russia want with Ukraine? Uh, they claim that they're explaining the tensions between Putin and NATO. To what extent um, 
uh, Casey, do you think that the the crisis in Ukraine is bound up in the corrupt international financial system that you describe in your book and that many others, Frank Vogel, Tom Burgess, Catherine Belton also write about? Yeah, Andrew, I think it is absolutely inextricably linked. I think some of the questions and criticisms about things like NATO expansion and U.S. interest in the region, I think many of those are actually far overblown. But I do think there is clear culpability on the West side, and especially in the United States of America, as it pertains to creating the kinds of financial systems that have allowed year in and year out, decade in and decade out, Ukrainian and Russian and other oligarchic elites to whisk billions and billions and billions of dollars out of their country, drying up local economies, drying up local investment, creating hardship on the ground that, as we know, leads to things like upticks and increases in basic nationalism leads to destabilization and civil strife. I don't think it's any surprise that we are seeing increased tensions in this region right now after decades and decades of the elite in that country, those oligarchic forces getting their money out of the country, parking it in things like American real estate, parking it in American investments, as well as British, Canadian, Australian investments uh, as well. Just a few weeks ago, we saw the same exact dynamic play out in Kazakhstan, where I used to live, same right, exact I, dynamic. I, I, I wanted to ask you about Kazakhstan. I know as yeah. a uh, when, when you graduate from college, you spent some time in Kazakhstan. I actually, I actually made a speech there last year in um, oh. uh, Nur Sultan, obviously before the political violence there. Uh, you mentioned uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, in which uh, Nur Sultan, uh, uh, which the, the the capital now is named after. Uh, how is this all connected? Yes, uh, as we know, and certainly as I could have attested, and other Kazakh um, uh, protesters were uh, were commenting just over the Where last. Where did you live, by the way? Was it in Almaty or in Nursultan? Uh, I lived in Almaty for a, a few months, and then I actually lived in a small village in the north of the country, along the Kazakh-Russian border. I was an English teacher over there with the Peace Corps, and it was an absolutely wonderful experience that I have uh, in many ways to thank for sparking this interest in transnational corruption because the ruling class and, and the family of President Nazarbayev, former President Nazarbayev himself, uh, have taken part in, again, year in, year out, these same exact offshoring financial secrecy networks connected to the United States of America. Uh, you know, Mr. Nazarbayev himself was actually the target of a high-level DOJ probe about 15 years ago for exactly those systems, using offshore bank accounts, using high-level bribery to enrich himself, his friends, the other oligarchic forces that rose with them. And that came to a head earlier this year what we saw as the galvanizing force of the protesters in Kazakhstan that obviously resulted in horrific bloodshed. It was an absolute tragedy what we saw, but the galvanizing force was not necessarily democracy, it was not nationalism, but was anti-corruption. It was concerns of and frustration with how the elite has predated on, has preyed on the basic you know, Kazakh family. The Kazakh investments that never went anywhere and the drying up of the local economies while those elite figures moved all of their money elsewhere into the United Kingdom, into the United States of America. It's no surprise that we saw something finally come to a head. It's no surprise we've seen those tensions in Ukraine, in Russia, because this is a dynamic that plays out in country after country after and country. And you also, you, you also attach uh, China with it. Uh, we did the show with Peter Goodman. Uh, about Davos man, the ultimate Davos man might be President uh, Xi Jinping of China, who who did a keynote at Davos this year. I called him the butcher 
of Beijing, but maybe a more appropriate title would be the banker of Beijing. How intimate is the Chinese regime in this new kleptocratic world order? Yes, I mean, the, the, the short answer is exceptionally. Uh, and in, it, it, you know, it would do us all a wonderful service if we had significant more reportage in and around how it is that Chinese and CCP links officials offshore their own finances. You know, one country that actually comes to mind is not the United States of America that has allowed CCP linked officials to follow these dynamics, follow these networks, and move so much of their money offshore, but is actually Canada. Because when I'm talking about the United States of America, and again, speaking as an American for especially American audiences. One thing I want to remind folks is that this was not an atypical development. We saw the same patterns and the same policies play out in Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in Europe, and elsewhere. In the supposedly developed and clean, that is to say broadly anti-corrupt uh, countries themselves. But what we know is that CCP-linked official after CCP-linked official has spent years and years getting their money and their family's money, especially out of the country and away from the prying eyes of any who might be opposed to where they are. I mean, this is, again, the same dynamic, the same typology in dictatorship after dictatorship after dictatorship. It doesn't and matter use, if it's a and as you note in the book, they, they use public relations firms to make to, to 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 launder their reputations and i think in the chinese case and we had a show about this uh earlier in the week in the chinese case uh suggesting that any kind of critique of china is a form of white racism the fourth part of your uh book is called the united states of anonymity um anonymity being i think you suggest the problem um We've had a number of shows about blockchain. Perhaps the most articulate and persuasive of all prophets of the blockchain is my old friend Don Tapscott. Is technology the fix here, Casey? If, if we simply had more blockchain-like currencies, which supposedly do away with anonymity, could this uh, fix the system? That is absolutely one element that could fix the system. Again, there is no one panacea. There is no one lightning strike that will fix this. This is an intricate web of interrelated dynamics that uh, create the edifice and you use of the word web without irony, of course. No, of course, of course not. Uh, far be it for me to slip a pun in every once in, in a while. But certainly on the side of technology, these elements of blockchain, these elements of increased, even basic computing power the actual infrastructural tools necessary to monitor these kinds of flows to allow for the tracking and tracing of these networks is absolutely a key development within this. And I will say to the side of, to the conversation of, of blockchain, broader uh, you know, crypto discourse, broader digital assets discourse, this is very much an emergent field as it pertains to both the problems of and the solutions within kleptocracy itself. So the book itself, I just want to let uh, folks know, does not touch on digital assets themselves. It gives the kind of broader 30, 40 year scope of where we are, what has led to where we are right now. And I, uh, I suppose I wouldn't be surprised if the, the follow on book has far more focus on blockchain, on digital well, assets, so, okay. so on crypto, on and, where we are right now. About that. Uh, I think your fixes are mostly more conventionally political. One guy who comes out of your book looking very good is a man who unfortunately passed away last year, uh, Carl Levin, the, um, uh, the U.S. senator from Michigan. You, you say that he was one of the, the men who was really determined to address this problem in, in the American system. Why, why is Levin a model for a political model for fixing all this. And what did he do? And what we what what does the Biden administration, you touched on this earlier, what do they need to continue to do? 
Yeah, uh, Andrew, it, it, it was, um, you know, it was very unfortunate to have Senator Levin pass. And certainly one of the honors on, on my end in putting the book together was getting the chance to speak with him about his work, his career. And, you know, writing a book about this transformation of the United States of America into the world's leading offshore financial secrecy haven. That, there, there are not a lot of heroes that come out of it. And I would certainly argue, and hopefully this comes across in the book, that Senator Levin was one of the closest figures that we had uh, in terms of somebody that we can emulate moving forward for potential solutions. Not least of which being simply the fact that Senator Levin, far, far earlier than certainly myself and others in this field, realized what a threat these kinds of kleptocratic figures and forces actually are, how they operate, and then beyond that, how they rely on American services and American industry. And how Rutman is. I mean, I'm, I'm doing some stuff on, on Tocqueville's uh, mm -hmm. democracy in America. And one of the things that Tocqueville reported on in the 19th century is what distinguished America from Europe was its transparency and, 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 and relatively um, uncorrupt uh, political and economic system. And of course, what you're suggesting is over the last 200 years, this has dramatically changed. Uh, I would say that's a fair summation of the trajectory of the United States over the past few centuries. Just to touch on Senator Levin one more moment, it was back in 2008. He was the very first legislator, along with a number of other colleagues in the Senate, including then-Senator Barack Obama, the very first legislator to try to ban what we now know are the uh, underpinnings, the basic underpinnings, the basic bedrock of all of this American kleptocracy, that is anonymous American shell companies. Now, Senator Levin had been working for years and years and years to get legislation passed that would finally ban, finally outlaw the formation of anonymous American shell companies, which are at the heart of so many of these kleptocratic systems and kleptocratic networks. And it was only in early 2021 that Congress finally, finally, finally passed legislation that would do that. And again, that legislation was passed over the veto of then President Donald Trump. Good. Oh, so, uh, let's end. Um... Let's end, Casey, with a couple more yeah. um, pieces of legislation which you yeah. think can, could begin to address this profound problem to, 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 to overturn uh, the American kleptocracy. So, yeah. So that yeah, no, world, absolutely. So that the United States no longer is the world's greatest money laundering scheme. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will say to that, and we have seen unprecedented momentum in the last year, both on the executive as well as on the legislative side in Congress. We now have the first counter-kleptocracy caucus, a bipartisan body that has been launching bill after bill after bill to begin patching up some of these holes, some of these policies, ending things like investor visa schemes, ending things, uh, ending some of these other tools that these kleptocratic figures have been using. Out of the White House, the Biden administration just last month introduced its very first anti-corruption strategy, again, talking specifically about some of these American industries, whether it pertains to real estate, whether it pertains to private investments like private equity and hedge funds, whether it pertains to art and auction houses, whether it pertains to the American enablers themselves, the lawyers, the accountants, the real estate agents. Uh, I, I would uh, recommend that uh, listeners and viewers read that document in totality. It's not very long, but it is remarkably comprehensive and the first of its kind. All of which is to say we have seen an unprecedented burst of momentum in the United States alone to begin tackling this problem. I wouldn't be surprised, Andrew, if we reconvene in another year or two to see that some of these policies have begun being implemented. We have so many dominoes yet to fall. You know, the silver lining of the issue of a modern American kleptocracy is that there are so many different facets out there to turn our attention to, to begin tackling. Uh, we have so many areas to choose from, which is both 
remarkably unfortunate, but allows for wide leeway moving forward. And thankfully, here we are in early 2022, and we have seen momentum unlike anything we've seen in America in decades to finally begin addressing some of these root causes. Well, we are talking with uh, Casey uh, Michel, the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. Uh, very articulate. Uh, I don't know if you're a young man, Casey, but you're not old. Uh, certainly younger than I am. Uh, and you do a very good job, I think, presenting your case. Uh, I think your book is essential reading. It's also very well written and coherent and compelling. It's not boring. Uh, sometimes these books are. Uh, Casey, in addition, I, I know you're in Louisiana at the moment in late January 2022. What else should people be reading in addition to American Kleptocracy? Well, I was going to say, Andrew, I, I know you mentioned these earlier. I can't recommend enough uh, Tom Burgess's Kleptopia, Catherine Belton's Putin's People, and obviously Frank Vogel's Enabler's book as well. Yeah, well, those three and yours, are, they're, they're, that's a, a quartet of important books. Well, those I was going to say, yours. yes, just, just within that field, Oliver Bullough's Moneyland is another one that came out a few years ago. And he actually has a brand new book coming out in March of this year, looking specifically at the British example. Again, my book, obviously looking at the American story. He is going to be turning to the United Kingdom in and of itself. And I will say the other one. So uh, what's the new book? By uh, uh, I don't know the name of the uh, the book actually off the top of my head. I believe it's called Service to the People or Servant to the People, some such. But again, looking, you know, his name is Oliver Bullo, author of Moneyland. Uh, I'm sure you can find more information about that online. The other book that comes to mind is something that actually predates this recent interest in kleptocracy itself, this recent momentum we've seen, all this new spate of books. You have to go back to 2013, 2014. And this is a book called Putin's Kleptocracy. And it's by a late academic named Karen Dawisha. And when this book came yeah. out, it was it received substantial pushback from both the publishers themselves, who were actually cowed into censoring much of the book. The British publisher ended up dropping it. But also the broader kind of academic Russian studies, Russian watching field by saying, what were you talking about? Why were you trying to frame Putin's regime as something that's maybe it's authoritarian, maybe it's not always pro-Western, but a kleptocracy, perhaps not. And that book has only aged better and better and better in the years since. I it was knew certainly... her, and she um, tragically died very young. I think she yeah. was also a colleague of uh, Fiona Hill. So that's a really good suggestion. Unfortunately, we can't get her on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Casey uh, Michelle, author of, of American Kleptocracy, really um, a, a really important conversation. I'm going to say it's a fun conversation, <laughs> an essential one to have. Uh, you suggested a follow-up. You'll have to come back on the show to talk more about this because this is one of the great issues, I think, in the world, which many of us don't understand. And we need journalists like yourself who tell the truth to uncover it. Thank you so much, Casey. Thanks so much, Andrew.